0: You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Well, good morning again. And Merry Christmas again. It is a joy truly to be, uh, to be gathered here together today. It's not often that we get to do this. I mentioned this yesterday in the Christmas Eve service, but 11 years uh, until the next time we get to do this on a Christmas Sunday morning. 2033 uh, is that year. Uh, I was chastised heavily by many young mothers um, for reminding them of this tragedy. I was also corrected by uh, our children's pastor that my daughter is not seven, she's six. I, <laughs> I don't know, you know? So she'll be 17 the next time we do this. Uh, it is, um, it is a, a treasure though to be able to do this. This morning we're celebrating uh, Christmas with roughly, statistics tell us, half of the world's population. More than 160 countries hold Christmas as an official holiday. 93% of Americans will celebrate it today. Over 75% Europeans will celebrate it today. Uh, It is celebrated in nearly every corner of the world. Certainly, there are a lot of people in those statistics who celebrate it for the wrong reasons. There's no doubt about that, whether it be uh, because of the commercialization of Christmas or just family traditions that are sort of devoid of any uh, Christ-centered purpose uh, there is tons of different emphases put on Christmas for different reasons, but understand this that the mere fact that the celebration of a day historically marked for the birth of Jesus. The fact that it has become so widely recognized in the world is in and of itself incredible. It's an incredible thing. And the question that that we need to ask this morning is how did it happen? How did this happen? How did we get to a point where uh, roughly half of the entire world is recognizing this day? We've been reading in uh, the Gospel of Luke for at least the last two weeks and we learned about how all this began. Remember the angel Gabriel came to uh, first Zechariah when he was in the temple and then to Mary, to let her know of what would happen. And then the Holy Spirit shows up and begins to indwell in, in John and in, and in Elizabeth and then in Zechariah. And, and then Jesus is born on this humble night alone on the bottom floor of Joseph's family home. And, and that same night, some strange men, shepherds in the field show up, and, and all of it begins really honestly kind of quietly in a very small town, not a whole lot of attention given whatsoever. So the question becomes, how does it go from that, a small town in the ancient Near East nearly 2,000 years ago, to half the world's population recognizing it today? If, if in other words, the birth of Jesus were likened to a small flame, we could see today uh, the Christmas story or the Christian message as more of a wildfire. And so I want us to consider this morning this gospel wildfire that exists in the world today. Experts tell us that in order for a wildfire to continue... There are three ingredients that are needed uh, to maintain a wildfire for it to grow and spread. First, it needs a spark. It needs something that will set the flame in motion. So this happens oftentimes uh, from anything from a, a lightning strike to a cigarette butt thrown carelessly out the window when someone is driving down the highway. But a wildfire for sure needs a spark to get it going. The second thing it needs is wind. It requires wind to blow and fan the flame that has begun with that initial spark to begin to push it further and further, to touch more and more things that those things would also be caught on fire. But third, and equally important, is it needs fuel. Fire won't move very far without fuel. If it comes to a point where there's nothing left to burn, then then it stops. It, 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 It flames out. All three of them are equally important. You cannot have a wildfire if there's never a spark. You can't have a wildfire if there's never wind to move the fire, and you can't have a wildfire if there is not fuel to burn it out. All three of them are equally needed for the spread of something like this. And so this morning, I want us to think about the gospel in terms of a wildfire, how the gospel has spread across the earth. And I want us to consider the three ingredients That the New Testament lays out for us that has created this massive wildfire that has spanned around the globe. It spread from Jerusalem, one humble quiet night, to uh, the ends of the earth today in 2022. So let's begin. First, we will consider the spark of the resurrection the spark of the resurrection. It's tempting to think that the spark of the Christian faith is the birth of Jesus, and certainly that's a major part of it. The arrival of Jesus in the flesh was necessary because according to the prophets, the Messiah was to suffer and die. Peter uh, preached about this in Acts chapter 3, verse 18. He said, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So in order to suffer, you have to be a living, physical human being. So the spark maybe begins with the birth, that's certainly a major part of the Christian story. But when we examine the New Testament, you begin to notice that it's not the birth of Jesus that is the most emphasized thing among early Christians. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus that the early church is most concerned with. It is the detail that matters more than any detail in the Christian message. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, in other words, if the resurrection has not happened, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is foolishness. What I'm doing is not gonna make a lick of difference and your faith to get here on a Sunday morning when you have a 100 other things to be doing is foolish, Paul says, if the resurrection has not taken place. The gospel hinges on this reality. It hinges on the reality that Jesus conquered the grave. Because in truth, Jesus could have been born exactly like we celebrated. All of that could have happened. And he could have grown into a man and performed incredible miracles that people could attest to and say, yeah, I saw it. It was crazy. He turned water into Welch's grape juice. And he turned... Um, it was wine. And, and he did these other things too. He healed people, right? And it was, it was insane. He could have suffered and died on the cross. There's no doubt about that. And, and, and people could have talked about that as well and recorded it in histories. Yeah, this, this rabbi, this Jewish miracle worker uh, led this really large movement and did all these wild things. And then he died on a cross. And if the story stops there, if after dying, he does not come back to life, we're not doing any of this this morning. You're having brunch at home right? If there's no resurrection, there's no hope. There's no chance for forgiveness. The resurrection is the single most important detail in the New Testament. But don't take my word for it. Take the New Testament's word for it. Let's look at some passages here. First, let's consider Luke 24, 45 and 46. This is right after the resurrection It says that Jesus appears to his disciples and it says he opened their mind to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The the moment they understood the significance of the resurrection was here afterwards when Jesus shows back up and opens their minds to understand it. Before this moment, they didn't get it. They didn't really still get it. John chapter 20 records this actually rather humorous story of John and Peter running to the empty tomb to see if what the women said about Jesus being raised was true. And John records this wonderful detail that he beat Peter in a foot race, just recorded in eternal history for everyone to know for the rest of time. They go into the tomb. And it says that uh, they find his face cloth, which would have been put over his face when he was buried. They found the burial linens that he would have been wrapped in, but they still didn't really understand what was happening. John chapter 20, verse 9, it says, for as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must arise from the dead. So they knew something happened, but they didn't really get the significance of it. Not yet. But here in Luke 24, he opens their minds to understand the scriptures, that Christ must not only suffer and die, but that he must rise from the dead. This is just a side note, it's not even in my notes, but I just wanna make the point that in order for you to understand spiritual truth, God has to open your mind. This is just a a reality that is interwoven in throughout the fabric of scripture. Spiritual things are not discerned by non-spiritual people. Paul makes a huge deal about this in 1 Corinthians chapters one and two. He has to open your mind in order to understand what is laid bare on the Scripture. So this is where they get the significance of it. Then we get to Acts chapter 4. This is after the Spirit and all that stuff has come. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Peter is preaching a, a, a message, and he says, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, and they were greatly annoyed. Listen, because of what? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That was their message, resurrection, resurrection. It's the central focus. Acts chapter 4, verses 33, this is right later in the chapter, it talks about how the church has been developing and how everyone had everything in common, that's in verse 32. They were unified, in other words, and they were sharing, and this was not socialism, by by the way, all right? That whole idea of oh, socialism, it's not the same thing. Um, that's, just stop. They were unified. They were learning from the apostles. And look, verse 33, it says, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to what? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. We get to Acts chapter 17. The apostle Paul visits a place called the Aeropagus. I have a picture for you here. This is an uh, ancient location uh, in <clears throat> the ancient Near East where men would gather together and discuss various philosophies and various religions. It was sort of a meeting of the minds. People would get up and speak. You would listen. There was kind of a dialogue. So Paul goes there, and he begins to share the gospel with them. Verse 22, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. In other words, he's establishing common ground with them, right? You guys are religious like I am. And they were. They were very, very religious, But it says that they had several altars that they could make sacrifices to. And one of them was named the Altar to the Unknown God. And and the, the reason for this is that in Greece, in Athens, their religion contained a pantheon of gods. You had many gods. And the Unknown God altar was just in case there was one up there that we didn't know about. Uh, If you were making offerings and that unknown God saw that he wasn't getting an offering, he could get really mad and strike you dead. So we want to make sure, just to cover our bases, that if there's another one, you know, because they have kids and they become gods and it's this whole mess, then we want to make sure we got our bases covered. So Paul points to this altar and he says, hey... Let me make known to you who this unknown God is because he's not unknown at all. He's made himself known, and let me tell you what he's like. And then he shares the gospel with him. And in verse 31, he says this, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Christ. And of this, he has given assurance. How do we know that this is true? By raising him from the dead. The resurrection was the assurance that the gospel message was true. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians 15, by the way, is one of the clearest expositions of the gospel. If you want to know how to share the gospel, read the first like 10 or 11 verses because that is a perfect laying out of what the gospel is. The really meat of it, honestly, is in verses 3 and 4. And notice what is emphasized here. (laughs) He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance also what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It's resurrection. Let's do one more in case I haven't made my point. First uh, Peter 1.3. This is the opening benediction of the Apostle Peter's letter. Look what he says. Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus... According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He's caused us to be born again. I'm just going to leave that floating out there for some of you. He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's everywhere you look in the New Testament. It's not just in the Bible either, by the way. It's a major aspect in, hu- in secular history. History affirms this event. There is a particular Roman senator and historian by the name of Publius Tacitus. Publius Tacitus. He wrote uh, in book 15 of the Annals, he says, these people were a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty During the reign of Tiberius, at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. (coughs) A man of many words. But notice some of the things that he admits in this. This is a really important text, by the way, for Christians. He admits that there really was a man named Christus who lived and inspired a movement, Christ, same word. He admits that this Christus character was put to death under the reign of Tiberius, just as Luke's gospel says. He admits that by the hands of the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate, he was put to death. These are all facts corroborated outside of the Bible that the Bible claims. But look at how he says this. This is what's so interesting. He says that following the death of this Christus character, this mischievous superstition was thus checked for a moment. So after the death of Jesus, things slowed down. They were kind of like, well, I guess it's, uh, he's not the one we thought he was, right? Let's go back to fishing. Let's go back our, to our houses. None of this matters. It's all a waste of time. But then notice what he says. And then it again broke out not only in Judea, but even in Rome something happened, he was put to death, things slowed down, and then all of a sudden it got a second wind, and it exploded, not only in Jerusalem, but it spread all the way to Rome, he says, now why would that happen, why would would things stop and then explode, it's because word of the resurrection began to spread, Jesus didn't die for long, because he came back, he was raised from the dead, now let me just be candid for you for a moment, Christianity, our faith that we are celebrating here today, is offensive in many ways to the outside world. We believe things that offend people in the world today, whether it's the the topic of the sanctity of human life or the value of human dignity, uh, that it begins at conception and it influences the way we see things like abortion Uh, Whether it's the biblical view of sexuality, uh, we believe that the Bible presents a certain moral code and that moral code should influence our ethics and our social interaction. Uh, We believe in absolute truth. There's a lot of things that you could pull out of the Bible and distill down that are by and large offensive to the world. But here's the problem. There's a tendency in the modern church today to want to argue those points with non-Christians. Like those are the things we choose to fight over with the non-believing world. And what I want you to understand is that when we're doing that with non-believers, we're emphasizing the wrong thing. None of these things were the spark of the Christian gospel wildfire. Here's why. Because you can argue them into submission. You can get them to come to the table and agree with you on, on our view of abortion. And you know what? They're no closer to Jesus as a result of that. You can get them to agree on a biblical view of sexuality. They're not a step closer to heaven as a result of that. None of these things have saving power within them. Lost people don't need to hear about anything else but the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because understand this, if Jesus is raised, then the New Testament has authority. And now we have to deal with the the New Testament. Now we have to deal with these claims. Now we have to wrestle with what it says about how we should live and and how we should operate and how we should engage with the public square. Then it matters. But if, if Jesus is not settled, if he's not the center point of what we're doing here, then nothing else good follows. Case in point. When I talk about these issues, which I've done a lot lately, even in this Advent series, it hasn't really been intentional. It's just sort of the way the, the, the Spirit has led me. Consider who I'm talking to in these environments. I'm talking to you and the tens of people online. <laughs> I'm, t- I'm talking to believers. I'm talking to believers. I, my concern with these topics and why, why I bring them up is that there are a lot of confessing Christians who have bought into the lie that you can claim the supremacy of Scripture over your life and still advocate for such worldly foolishness. That you can have your cake and eat it too, proverbially speaking. I have a problem with that, and I'm gonna let you know about it. Because as a Christian, we ought to know different. We have the witness of the Word of God. We have the witness of the indwelling Holy Spirit within us. We are at, or without with, excuse. Excuse. But for our non-believing friends and family members and people out in the world, I don't care about any of those things. I don't wanna talk about any of those things with them because none of those things are gonna bring them to salvation. None of those things are going to bring them to making confession of faith that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. None of them will. Only the resurrection has that power. Only the gospel has the power to save. Paul, in Romans chapter one, that's what he says. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and the Greek also. Not your ethics, not morality, all things that are important once you're here. You gotta gotta iron those things out. You gotta let the Spirit move you into conformity with Christ and not the other way around. But the power of God unto salvation is the gospel of Jesus. And it hinges on the resurrection, it's the spark that leads to this wildfire, it's the most pivotal moment in human history. If the resurrection is true, then all of it's true. It's the spark of the wildfire, but Like every wildfire, like I said, a single spark is not enough. There has to be wind as well. So second, the New Testament lays out the wind of the Holy Spirit. Notice that this wildfire sparked by the resurrection doesn't really begin to spread until the coming of the Holy Spirit. And this shouldn't surprise us. It's what Jesus said, right? Luke 24, verses 48 and 49, he says, "'You are witnesses of these things,' talking about the resurrection." And then he says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Stay in the city until you receive power. Jesus says something very similar in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, But you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will receive power which will come in the form of my Holy Spirit. So right after Jesus says this in Acts, he ascends into the clouds. It's it's really kind of an awesome image if you're thinking about it. He's like talking to his disciples and they're like, yeah, uh uh-huh. Whoa. Right? He's just gone. He's just up into the clouds. Um, After this... So understand the spark takes place, resurrection happens, Jesus tells them to wait in the city, and so they do. They go into the city. They've returned to Jerusalem at this point into a house unnamed. We don't know whose it was, but they go into the upper room of the home, and look who was with them, by the way. Acts chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Not Judas Iscariot. He's at this point, right? Um, Judas, the son of James. This is the primary group that's there. But verse 14, it says, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and who? Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brother. So I made this point uh, a few weeks ago or last two weeks ago that Mary doesn't receive the Holy Spirit in in, in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah does. Elizabeth does. John has it. Mary never receives the spirit then. The spirit overshadows her and she obviously conceives the son of God and all that's great, but she never receives the indwelling Holy Spirit in the same way until here. She's with the disciples and the women in the upper room waiting for the power to come. And then we get to Acts 2, verses 1 and 2. And it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So they're there. They're in the city. They're waiting around. They hear what literally sounds like a rushing wind. And the Holy Spirit falls on them. Verses 3 and 4. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They receive power. Right after this happens, the entire dynamic of these people changes. They go from feeble, nervous, flighty individuals to bold, confident, fearless warriors for the gospel. Peter preaches on Pentecost. 3,000 people are saved. Uh, the small flame that began in the spark of the resurrection is fanned into a raging fire by the Holy Spirit of God. But like every wildfire, it's not enough to just have a spark and to just have wind. You need fuel as well. And so that brings us to our final point for the morning, the fuel of Persecution. We come back to Acts 1.8 for a moment. Notice what Jesus says. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, talking about, again, the resurrection, in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Jesus dictates here for us. It's actually quite helpful where the wildfire is going to spread, He says it's going to start here in Jerusalem. This is where you are. They're in Jerusalem in the upper room of this house. It's going to spread out further and further. It's going to get into Judea, and then it's going to move into Samaria, and it's just going to keep going further and further until it reaches the ends of the earth. And this is exactly what the book of Acts portrays. Acts chapters 1 through 7 all primarily take place in Jerusalem. All of the ministry that happens there, everything that's going on really centers in Jerusalem. Now, if you remember what happens at the end of Acts chapter 7, The first Christian martyr, Stephen, is put to death by stoning. And then we get to 8, chapter 8, verse 1. And it says, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Just like Jesus said, it's going to go out to Judea and then into Samaria. But notice why. What's the fuel that leads to the spreading of the fire? It's persecution. That's the fuel, that's the thing that keeps it burning, is persecution. You know, our faith is so interesting, Christianity is so interesting, because persecution is meant to put something down, right? It's meant to put the fire out. You wanna snuff the fire out, you persecute it until it burns out. It's meant to silence the people. You persecute people to shut them up, so they stop talking about it. And yet for the gospel, this, this is like interesting, kind of annoying paradox that the more you persecute it, the more fuel you add to the fire. And historically, this has always been the case. Regions that are the most persecuted for Christians tend to have the quickest growth of any other place in the world. Historically, that has always been the case. They always grow the more you see persecution. We see it in Acts as well. It begins in Jerusalem. Persecution breaks out. It moves to Judea and Samaria. They're still being persecuted. They're still being arrested and beaten and taken to trial and arrested and beaten. And then you start to see what? The rest of the world, the ends of the earth, play a role in the gospel's spread. In Acts chapter 8, we find an Ethiopian man who's on his way to worship. And uh, remember, he is met by Philip. Philip shows up. It says the spirit just sort of takes him woof, in a cloud. I like to imagine, like, in Super Mario, when you jump in the cloud and you can kind of move really fast. this is where my mind goes. He's all of a sudden in the desert with this Ethiopian man. He opens the scroll of Isaiah, preaches Jesus to him. The man is immediately born again. He's going to go back now to Ethiopia, and he's going to share what? The gospel with them. And history tells us that that is the case. Ethiopia has a very early tradition of Christianity leading back to what history says was that man. Uh, in Colossians chapter 3, we are learn of a, a people group called the Scythians. The Scythians, these were historically individuals who uh, came from Iran, but migrated at some point very early before the time of Jesus into now modern-day Russia. Uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 24, Paul talks about really wanting to go share the gospel in Spain, probably because he likes paella. Paella is delicious, but... Uh, But in all seriousness, it's very interesting that Spain, like you don't think about Spain as a place in the Bible, but it's right there in Romans chapter 15, verse 24. You have the spark of the resurrection which ignites this fire, right? That's the ignition point. You have the wind of the Holy Spirit that fans this fire into greater flames, and then you have the fuel of persecution that spreads the fire across the earth, I want to say something to you that may be a little hard for some of you to hear, and, 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 uh, and I mean it, I want you to think about it, okay? It, 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 I want you to wrestle with, with what I'm about to say to you. There's a lot of angst in the Christian world today, in the world of Christians. There's a lot of angst, a lot of anxiety about the state of things, about how bad the world is. You read the news. You learn about all these things that are happening in different countries, even in our own country. And there's this kind of anxiety that's sort of building, I think, in a lot of Christians, kind of like, what's going on? How, how, how much further are we going to trend away from God's truth and God's law? And often, in primarily evangelical circles at least, we pray for things like revival, right? We want revival in this nation, do we not? Yeah, it's okay to say that. We want revival in our country that we live in in our city that we live in, in our state that we live in. We want revival in our schools. That's a big one right now. We'd love to see revival take place in our schools. We'd love to see revival take place in our public square. We'd love to see the world that we live in begin to bend towards exalting Jesus more. We want want to do things like put Christ back in Christmas, right? It's a big one. These are things that we want, and they're good things. They're things we should desire. But, But here's the problem. We want them without being willing to accept what it takes to get them. We want revival, but we're not willing to accept what it takes to get revival. If you want to see the gospel revived in America today, if you want to make America a Christian nation, there's only one thing in this ingredient list that's really missing right now. And it's, it's not the spark that we lack. The resurrection is as true today than, than it has ever been in any day. It's not lost its power. We we don't lack the wind either. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling in every believer in here. There's no doubt about it. What we lack is fuel. We lack persecution in our country towards our faith. We're too comfortable in this world as Christians. There are people right now in the world who will die today for their faith. There are people who will die because they will refuse not to go to church because gathering with God's people is their commitment in the faith and they are committed to it even unto death. And yet, this morning in America, many churches across the country are closed because it's just a little too inconvenient on Christmas morning. And we wonder why the gospel has fallen flat in America. We wonder why Christians are not bold enough to speak truth. We're not bold enough to wake up on a holiday and go to church. That's a problem. That's an issue. We need to be shaken up. We need fuel for the fire. You want to know why the gospel is not raging? It's because we lack the fuel of persecution. So if you want revival, I do. If you want revival, if you want to see Christ glorified in this country, to see God renew us and transform us into the image of his son, then pray for persecution. Pray that the church would be challenged in a way we've never been challenged before because it seems like when you look at the example of the New Testament, it's the only thing that really seems to get our butts in gear. We need it now more than ever before because when that does happen, watch the wildfire spread. Watch the gospel go crazy in this country like it does in every other country around the world right now that's being pressed by the persecution that takes place. I thought it would be really great today to do things a little differently. Uh, Last night, we did not do the candle lighting because we wanted to wait until this morning. And uh, it's not something we'll do every year. I intend to have candle lightings normally on Christmas Eve. But given the theme of this Advent series, the light of the world, and given what we're talking about today, the light spreading like wildfire, I wanted to see a kind of fun visual take place here with us. We have the Christ candle and the four aspects of what Advent season is all about, joy, peace, hope, and love. And I'm going to ask our elders and those that I have asked to come up, come up and light their candles from the flame of the Christ candle It begins with Jesus, it spreads to a few in the early church, and then from the early church's witness across the world, the light of the world becomes quite literally the light of the world as it spreads. And so go ahead and light your candles. If we could dim the lights a little bit too, that would be awesome. It's probably not planned, but you know, when in Rome, the center of all things evil, as Tacitus says, (laughs) And you're gonna see, I want you to pay attention, how light spreads from one person to another. It begins small, a flame, a flicker. And as it moves and touches other people, sometimes it goes out. You gotta go back to Jesus and relight it. That's just kidding, it doesn't go out. We believe in security of the believer here. This is just a bad candle, all right? But you see it, you got the Judas candle, that's what happened. (laughs) I'm full of jokes today. It's probably not a good thing. (laughs) Look around you. Watch how light spreads. Watch how the fire spreads from one person to another. Would you consider, as we sing this final song, would you consider seeing this light spread from one person to another and what that would look like in your life as you share the gospel with people that you know. Don't share your opinions on things that are just going to create arguments. Share the resurrection. Share the resurrection of Jesus. Share the Messiah who came to live and suffer and die and rise again according to the scriptures. As the light goes out, let's sing.